Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about crime and criminal justice reform. A lot of Californians think crime is increasing, even though stats show that most nonviolent crime has been decreasing. It's something that is central to many races here and across the country and will continue to be over the next year. Our guest today is Lenora Anderson. She is co-founder of Californians for Safety and Justice. That's one of the leading criminal justice reform groups here in California. And she's also president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. She's also the co-author of Proposition 47, which a lot of conservatives, particularly ones running for office here, including attorney general, want to get rid of because they say it's enabling crime around California. A quick reminder, uh, for those of you not familiar with it, in 2014, California voters approved Prop 47, which was a statewide initiative that reclassified certain theft and drug possession charges from felonies to misdemeanors, including shoplifting of items under $950. We talk about all of that today with our guest, Lenora Anderson. Lenore Anderson, from your dining room in Oakland to my daughter's uh, former bedroom in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you for having me. Before we dive into the, all the, the good criminal justice stuff that we're going to talk about here, tell us a little bit about uh, about your background for folks who may not be uh, familiar with it. You have um, worked for Kamala Harris, our, our vice president, uh, when she was in her uh, first gig as the district attorney of San Francisco. And uh, George Gascon, you're also uh, director of public safety in Oakland, and you similar position in San Francisco. Tell us how all that work shaped uh, your view of the criminal justice system. Sure. Well, I'm an attorney, and I've been working on criminal justice and public safety policy issues for my entire career. I actually started out uh, doing juvenile justice reform, working with families of youth facing incarceration time and trying to help those families advocate for alternatives. After that, I did that work for about five years. And then I actually switched gears and went inside local government and looked at the issue of criminal justice from a very different perspective, working side by side with law enforcement, working inside a prosecutor's office, working on issues of public safety for the mayors of San Francisco and Oakland. And what I saw was that this issue of criminal justice is not just an issue of too much incarceration. It's an issue of ineffectiveness all the way around. I saw in the prosecutor's office too many times the inability for homicide cases to be closed, families left with no resolution in those horrific instances. I saw victims who couldn't get access to really basic services because they were denied from the Victim Compensation Board. We saw communities that were struggling to stop that cycle of crime and literally didn't have the resources to get youth off the streets and into programs that help them and to help families in crisis. So from that perspective, you know, I went from my time in government into launching Californians for Safety and Justice, which is a statewide criminal justice reform advocacy organization. But when we started the organization, we really started with that perspective of this problem of mass incarceration is 
the wrong pathway to public safety. It literally does not help us get communities safe. And so trying to recover from that, recover from this era of ineffective safety is what we're trying to do now as a state. And again, in 2012, you started uh, the organization uh, Californians for Safety and Justice. Uh, And in 2014, you were one of the co-authors of Proposition 47 which was passed with uh, 50, 59% of uh, California voters passed that. That's a very strong margin. Uh, it classified certain crimes as misdemeanors instead of felonies, uh, unless the defendant had prior convictions for murder, rape, uh, certain sexual offenses, gun crimes. Uh, for example, shoplifting, which was uh, where the value of property does not exceed $950, was treated as a misdemeanor. What was when you when you put that together, what was your original intent of Prop 47? Well, California voters from across the political spectrum agree on a couple of things. First, they all want safety. And second, very few endorse the mass incarceration approach. Most want a criminal justice system that's fair, a criminal justice system that works and one that really prioritizes prevention and rehabilitation. What we've seen in California for the last 30 plus years here, this this is the state, you know, a lot of people kind of don't know enough about the history, but California was really the leader in mass incarceration for many, many decades. This is the state that increased incarceration rates by 1,500% over a 25 year time period. This is the state that built 22 prisons and only one university over that same time period and really exported that kind of tough on crime mentality to other states. So, you know, way back in 2014, we were looking at how can we reverse course here? How can we actually have a balanced approach to investing in safety? And the idea was consistent with what everyday people think There's really no reason to put people in these bloated and ineffective state prisons for some of these low-level crimes. Let's figure out alternative strategies for those crimes, and that'll save us state money that would go to prisons, and we can put that money into communities. Joe, Proposition 47 has already reallocated half a billion dollars from California's prisons budget to mental health diversion youth programs, reentry programs, victim services. This is the kind of balanced approach that voters were clamoring for and why we put Proposition 47 together. And how do you how do you measure success of Prop 47 other than the the savings uh, the, and the and the uh, redirection of those funds, which has been it's considerable as you know. Yes. So there's, you know, first and foremost, it's the reallocation of those dollars to things that voters want instead of costly prisons. And we've seen that in spades. Um, It's the buildup. You know, Proposition 47 was an opportunity to show what it would look like to invest in safety at the local level. Mental health crisis response, reentry programs that have a job emphasis, those kinds of programs are being built up and supported through Proposition 47 dollars. So that's another success story. The other piece here that's critical is reduction in the unnecessary use of incarceration. We have been as a state on a runaway train to using the one-size-fits-all prison-first approach, 
And we're finally starting to recover from that. And it's requiring local jurisdictions to do their business differently. But that is the long overdue reform that has been needed. And there, there have been various studies at looking at, uh, at 47, uh, the 2018 study from UC Irvine found, quote, little evidence to suggest that Prop 47 causes crime to increase in California. Uh, and if you look at the even um, uh, various statewide stats, uh, crime, of course, is uh, becoming a big issue in California uh, right now. It's a political issue. Uh, it, it will be uh, it is it's in the recall, not as much as I frankly, as I thought it would be. Uh, and also in the, um, it will be certainly next year in the attorney general's race. Uh, but you, if you look at the statewide stats, shoplifting is down 34% um, since the passage of uh, four, 47 a few years ago. Now I will play you, uh, but I had, uh, there have been some people who, who do, uh, are don't, uh, are dubious about those stats. And uh, one of them was on the podcast recently. I, I believe you heard, heard this episode. Um, this is Anne-Marie Schubert, and Anne-Marie Schubert is the uh, district attorney of uh, Sacramento. She is also, uh, she's running a longtime Republican. She is now a, um, a, a nonpartisan, uh, running under the nonpartisan label, and she is um, uh, running for attorney general next year against Rob Bonta and uh, Nathan Hoxinson, who's the um, uh, uh, former federal prosecutor. Here is Anne-Marie Schubert on uh, what she thinks of 47 and crime stats in general. It's not uncommon. People say, oh, theft is down. Yeah. Just because crime is not reported doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So you're saying people, people aren't, need, people stop reporting 100%. Ask, ask any of the retailers that whether or not we're really reporting all the theft. Ask people that are in San Francisco whose cars are breaking in after five minutes of being left alone. Is everybody reporting? Of course not. It's too onerous. They know nothing's happening. They're fed up. Law enforcement's frustrated because it, it, law enforcement across the state are frustrated because we don't have the tools, again, to get people that actually are doing these crimes because of drug problems to get them into drug treatment. We've decimated our drug courts. What, what tools would you like to see uh, police officers have, law enforcement have? Well, I think, for instance, you know, when somebody is a serial thief, meaning they're going in over and over and over again, you know, we cannot, under Prop 47, if I walked into five stores today and decided, oh, I think I'm going to rip them off, you know, five different stores for $900, I go to one store, second, third, fourth, fifth, and I steal $900, it's a straight-up misdemeanor. So you get a ticket for that crime. So even though it's $4,500, we, we are not allowed under the law to what we call aggravate that theft. And so what we really need is that serial theft law, not the organized retail crime law that, you know, was passed. And the governor wanted to tout yesterday is that I, I think he thinks it's the, the solution. It's not the solution. It's virtually impossible to prosecute. Um, and the data would show that. But when you have a theft law, California's theft law as it exists today, that does not give us the tools to get people into drug court, we are failing in our efforts to address those problems. Okay, that was Sacramento District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert on It's All Political back on July 26th. Now, back with Lenore Anderson, number one, fact check, is, is uh, Anne-Marie Schubert correct when you said, you know, when she talks about uh, you can only be prosecuted uh, as a misdemeanor if someone were to go in and, and serially rip off uh, less than 950 bucks in a number of places? Is that accurate? That's not accurate. It, California prosecutors have plenty of tools. We have a huge penal code that provides plenty of opportunities for uh, creative approaches to chronic pro crime problems. What's being described here is most definitely chronic behavior. 
this is all part of one plan or one continuous scheme. It's fairly common as a tool for prosecutors to look at multiple instances as one plan or one scheme. So clearly hitting up five stores in one day is is part of one crime spree and should be treated as such. The intent of Proposition 47 was uh, not ever about uh, preventing the ability for the criminal justice system to deal with significant behavior. The realities are most of the time, this is actually not significant behavior. Most of the time, that lack of creativity was driving people who were stealing Snickers bars into incarceration and into a justice system that frankly would more often than not make matters worse. So the opportunity here is to, instead of doing the blame game and the pointing fingers, you know, the issue of crime has has been politicized for far too long. And it's time to think clearly about how local justice system officials can work together to appropriately respond to either more serious crime or less serious instances. So uh, when you say a lack of creativity, what is what is what are you referring to there? One of the things that's kind of most notable, uh, having worked inside the criminal justice system, is just how little of it operates as a system, right? <laughs> this is actually, it's almost a misnomer to call it a criminal justice system because this is really a different uh, criminal justice agencies that make decisions without really any anticipation for what's going to happen next. You know, the police officer on the street, if you kind of zoom out and you look at the reality of how these decisions are made, uh, police officers on the street make decisions about uh, whether or not they're going to do a ticket versus an arrest, usually based off, uh, do I want to do the paperwork that would be required to bring the person in? Then the sheriff makes jail management decisions that are very isolated from what the police officer might be seeing. And then the charging prosecutors making decisions in very isolated ways as well. These are also highly politicized agencies. They operate in very opaque ways and they're excellent at blaming another part of the system for what's going wrong with public safety. They've got 30 plus years of experience doing that. The opportunity is to change that way of interacting, to require that justice officials share and communicate with each other about chronic crime problems and look for strategic ways to address those, to collaborate on how you're going to charge certain cases, how you're going to build up the alternatives and uniformly support them for the lower level instances. These are all possibilities that are amply available to local officials, they rarely take them. But why Why don't they take them? Why don't they take them? I, I, I talked to uh, Vernon Pearson, and you know Vernon, he's the, the president of the California District Attorneys Association of the day, and he kind of echoed what uh, what Schubert said. He said, uh, retail theft and, va- and robbery are vastly underreported. And they said, uh, retailers have told him that that uh, he said retailers have instructed their employees not to detain, not to get into physical altercations with alleged thieves. Uh, so, which means there's no report. Um, so, people that he's saying that retailers are not reporting these crimes, and we've all seen the viral videos of the crimes. What what do you say to to those folks who are you know retailers who are 
who are getting ripped off and 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 they and they blame 47 for that what what do you uh, say should be done in that those cases well a couple of different things um i want to mention joe uh, first is just that crime reporting rates have been low chronically for generations crime reporting was low before the mass incarceration era and continues to be low in this era of criminal justice reform Sometimes in some cities, uh, theft uh, reports are as low as 5 to 10% of all theft that happens. In some cities, uh, even more serious crimes uh, like sexual assault or non-fatal shootings, the reporting rates are extremely low. So that begs the question, if it's not going in the door on the front, on the front end, where is our crime prevention strategy? Where is our strategy to stabilize people, to reduce the number of people in crisis so that we can reduce the chances that people engage in criminal activity? So that's one big question mark that arises when you look at crime reporting rates. They are low and they have been low for generations. So clearly the ratcheting up sentencing approach didn't work <laughs> to, to increase crime reporting. And the ratcheting down of sentencing has the opportunity to actually rebalance money and has a higher likelihood of potentially working. When it comes to uh, people's uh, concerns about safety, there are a couple of things that voters value. Safety is definitely at the top of that list and reasonably so. That is an important value that we all hold. What voters simultaneously support is something that is perceived of at times as intention with safety, which is a fair criminal justice system, a reduction in the overuse of incarceration, uh, investments in rehabilitation. Those things don't have to be intention. We have to scale up the mental health infrastructure that's been sorely lacking in this state. We've got to scale up crisis assistance so that we can move people out of crisis and into stability faster. Relying on the justice system to respond to these chronic problems of homelessness, mental illness, combined with cycling in and out of the justice system, it's, it's, a, it's a failure to rely on a system that really can't pull very many levers to solve it. And I think when you look at what's frustrating to Californians in terms of what they see in the streets and what's missing, there is a solution and it's not going to be a primarily a criminal justice solution. It's going to be about mental health. It's going to be about uh, housing assistance. It's going to be about those kinds of solutions. We'll be back with more of our conversation about criminal justice reform with Lenora Anderson right after this short break. And now, here's more of our conversation with Lenora Anderson. Your organization recently did a, uh, a survey, which we report on, that said, uh, and it was done by David Binder Research. This is the uh, San Francisco pollster. He's worked for Obama and the, and the Biden presidential campaigns, among many others. It, it found that 65% of Californians believe that crime is getting worse, while 29% said it is the same or diminishing, and that's among 1,000 likely voters. Uh, we did something on the uh, road column about this a couple of weeks back. And I talked to Bill Scott is the, 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 the um, police chief here in San Francisco. And he said, statistics, I'm glad we track them. I'm glad we have them. I can tell people all day long that crime is down, but if you don't think so, and you don't feel safe, 
then that has to matter to us. What did that survey and Bill Scott's comments here tell you? Because they're crime stats. You can tell people, hey, theft is down. People are not reporting it. Uh, you can tell people, you know, we know homicides are up. What, what describe what, what uh, you know, the sort of the, the alchemy there between how people feel about crime and crime stats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the survey uh, taught us two really important things. One is what you just described, which is that Californians feel uh, like crime is on the rise. And when we look at certain subsections of data, that is true, that uh, gun violence homicides in particular are on the rise. So that's the first thing that the survey taught us. And that's critical when we think about uh, what are the solutions that uh, government officials and community advocates need to be focusing on. Uh, Crime and safety is near top of the list at this point. The second thing that the survey revealed, however, was that even in the midst of 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 an increasing sentiment around concern for crime, you're not seeing a change in the way Californians want us to address crime. Californians are very clear that that old 90s rhetoric, that sort of, you know, three strikes and you're out slogan type of driven politics is old, it's dysfunctional, and it didn't work. And the opportunity that Californians are calling on leaders to take seriously is an investment in crime prevention, an investment in crisis assistance, and an investment in mental health. That's really what comes up. You know, when you look at uh, kind of zooming out, the the pandemic was massive in its fomenting of instability for people who were already living on the margins before the, the pandemic hit. It should really come as no surprise that there is a post, uh, you know, sort of COVID wave of shifts in things like gun violence. And what it calls for is for us to take seriously the solutions that we know exist at the neighborhood level that do not exclusively focus on, you know, mass surveillance and mass incarceration that really are much, much smarter, that are about stabilizing people in crisis. And that's what we saw. The, um, you know, in that, in that survey, we asked about half a dozen to a dozen policy solutions, overwhelming support. I mean, 80, 80, 85 percent support for these type of ideas, crisis assistance, trauma recovery, mental health diversion. These are things, you know, I've been doing this work for so long. I can tell you, people used to not know what we were talking about. <laughs> you know, it used to be- The conversations right, definitely has changed right? over the last it's several years. It's yes, definitely improved, yeah, yeah. and the time is to put the money there. The uh, and, and Just to uh, put, a, put a number on what you're talking about, 61% of the folks in the survey said that uh, rehabilitation is the, is the answer to future uh, crimes, and 29% wanted incarceration, which is a, a absolute flip from the early uh, to mid nineties when we saw it, we were had the crime bill and, and the crackdown here in California. So uh, what do, but what do you do here? We both live in Oakland. The, our, our police chief recently said, quote, crime is out of control. I mean, the police chief says crime is out of control. And, uh, and there has been an increase in, in shootings and, and homicides here in Oakland. What do you say to that? He wants, and he said, we need more staff on the police. And uh, we had a story in, in the Chronicle uh, today was we're recording this. And he said, you know, staffing hasn't gone down in Oakland. What do you, where are you on, 
I, I hesitate to use the word defund the police because that's an accurate and uh, term. But where do you where should what do you say to people who are who have increasing crime in their neighborhood? What and and uh, increasingly they see increasing shootings and homicides. What what should the answer be for them? Yeah. Well, a, cu- a couple different uh, answers. We, we've been working for the last um, 10 years or so on what we call shared safety, which is a, a balanced investment approach to Im- improving uh, public safety at the neighborhood level. And there's a couple of key aspects to that. First, there is a huge trust gap between community and police for, for very good reason. We've had a racially biased justice system uh, for uh, the that has only been worsened under mass incarceration and has been racially biased since the outset. Um, so this idea that we can just fund law enforcement and that's going to impact things, it's not accurate at the neighborhood level. That's that's not actually what uh, most residents uh, think is going to be the solution. So we need first crisis assistance. When we have people who are struggling with homelessness, mental illness, and also drug addiction. Uh, Those are folks that police encounter and very rarely have anywhere to take them. It's either a ticket or you're in the jail. That's a failed solution uh, plus another failed solution, right? So there's no real option. There are models of one-stop crisis assistance centers that you can take people who are struggling with mental illness and homelessness to a place where social workers and crisis experts can uh, triage and can find stabilizing support for those individuals. So that's the first thing that's critical is crisis assistance. Are there, what cities are, I'm sorry to interrupt, but what, what cities are doing that effectively now? Sure. Uh, well, you know, Los Angeles has had a pilot uh, for the last uh, few years where they send crisis responders out uh, in, in certain neighborhoods when the uh, police call that's coming in is related to this. Uh, there's a model out of Eugene, Oregon called Cahoots that has been getting a lot of public attention lately and rightfully so. It's a 30 plus years development of this model and it's the same thing. You send out crisis responders because it's a it's a it's a psychiatric crisis. It's not a it's it's not even appropriate for law enforcement half the time. So so that's critical and that needs to be scaled up. The second thing that needs to be scaled up is community-based violence prevention. A lot of the neighborhood violence that happens happens between people who know each other, for whom there's personal conflicts, and for whom credible elders from the community can intervene, can mentor young people, can get young people off the streets and into programming where they can get support. There's this thing called peacemaking, right? Neighborhood peacemaking. This is a this is a very effective model and has had huge impacts in cities across the country. It's usually underfunded, right? It's usually neighborhood people who are volunteering their own time to, they know the kids, they know the young adults, they know the crisis that their lives are in. They know how to help folks get out of crisis and get out of the neighborhood gun violence conflict. In cities like Newark, New Jersey, uh, you've seen gun violence reduction rates of 50, 60% based off of this neighborhood peacemaking community-based model combined with law enforcement. So that's the second thing. And then I'll just mention two other things that are critical that are part of what we talk about when we talk about shared safety, which is 
victim services and reentry. When we talk about victim services, you know, as much as there's this rhetoric that like all this mass incarceration was was for victims, the truth is the vast majority of victims don't get help. Okay, and get lacking help when you're in crisis, when you're shot, or when you're a victim of sexual assault, you experience long range impacts of trauma. And without appropriate support, you fall through the cracks. So we've got to get trauma recovery support in real time to people who are suffering from violence. And then when it comes to reentry, I mean, you know, we're living in a time where people are putting the dots together here. But if someone's coming out of the justice system and they can't get a job and can't get a home, what do we think is going to happen, right? We're either setting people up for reintegration, rehabilitation, and stability, or we're not. And we've got to make that right choice and invest in reentry. I want to ask you a couple quick uh, political questions because, you know, this is the It's All Political podcast. Could you see any tweaks to Prop 47? Prop 47 is an absolute success. What I think we need to do is provide more direct instruction or more specific guidance to local jurisdictions on how they need to adapt to criminal justice reform. Proposition 47 is one of dozens of major criminal justice reforms that have come from the voters or from the legislature, and these have been hugely successful. We've seen reduces in incarceration, reduced expenditures on wasteful prisons. Now the question is, okay, local officials, the voters have spoken. How are you going to adapt? How are you going to update your practices? As I was indicating earlier, that hyper-politicized era right? The, 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 the tough on crime era where um, everything was a blame game. Those old politics have got to shift and you've got to start looking at what are the real solutions here? How can you incentivize people to stop engaging in low-level crime? How can you provide uh, opportunities to clear records by getting people into treatment? You know, there are so many different ways that the criminal justice system does not have to always be a hammer. (laughs) It can actually work with treatment providers to shift how we relate. And that, you know, this is the opportunity that local officials already have. And it's possible that everything from realignment all the way over to uh, the justice reforms coming out of the legislature right now need to provide more direct guidance to locals, because if they're not willing to take that creativity, the voters should. Speaking of, uh, of, of, of politicization of, uh, of, of 47 and other things, uh, two of uh, 47's biggest fans, uh, district attorneys, uh, Jason Boudin here in San Francisco and, and George Gascon, your former uh, colleague uh, in San Francisco, now the district attorney of, of Los Angeles, both facing possible recalls. What do the outcomes of, of whatever happens with those recalls, whether they happen or not, or whether they're successful or not, if they are uh, uh, proof of the ballot. What what does that say about where we are, about some of these criminal justice reforms? And, and, and these folks are often held out as sort of examples of the new style of district attorney in, in, the, in the country. What, what, do the, what does that say about it, if, uh, depending on where, how those things go? Well, it, it should come as no surprise that every 
uh, action faces a reaction, okay? So depending on how uh, large of an action you take towards reform, it should, it should come as no surprise that there's a reaction. But that reaction is out of touch. That reaction is off base. And that reaction is seeking to bring California back to a time where we were living with mass incarceration and a lack of safety all in one era. So, you know, the, the leadership from DA uh, Boudin and DA Gascon has been enormous. These are forward-thinking prosecutors. They represent the new. They represent what's next. They represent what California voters have been clamoring for. These, the old guard who is losing their authority and losing their ability to kind of just do whatever they want and call it public safety, that old guard's upset. They have some decent money. They're going to try and resist. They're going to try and do the classic blame game. They're going to try and do that, you know, hysteria. Um, and it's not going to work, first of all, uh, because California voters are smarter. Um, and second of all, uh, it's critical that we stop trying to resist what is so obvious and what is so needed. You know, if you were going to design a public safety system, right, if you were just going to scratch everything and start all over, there's not one rational person on any side of the political spectrum that would say, let's put all the money in a bunch of bloated prisons that, that are going to return people to communities with, with instability. And um, let's just label that public safety. No one supports this. So this, this political gamesmanship, my hope is that when these recall attempts fail, they will finally start to say, you know what, maybe we better embrace reform and just commit to figuring out how we can do it in the best way possible. Even if those recall attempts do fail, you will be. They will be. Uh, this issue will not be going away in California anytime soon because we have a big attorney general's race here in California next year, which I think will be nationally watched. I'm sure you probably think the same way, and uh, at arguably one of the more interesting races on the ballot next year in, in 2022. Uh, we have a progressive attorney general, Rob Bonta, our, our neighbor here in the East Bay uh, from Alameda. He is being challenged uh, by a Republican, as we alluded to earlier, Nathan Hockman and uh, Anne-Marie Schubert, who we heard from uh, a little bit earlier. What will that race uh, and, how, and its outcomes say about the status of criminal justice reform here in California? What an exciting time. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a state, you know, I, I again, I, I kind of am amazed at, at times because, you know, it wasn't that long ago that you would have never had uh, this many reformers in positions of leadership. So uh, we're, we're a lucky state to have uh, such a wide range of uh, criminal justice reformers in, in positions of importance. So this race really matters. And it really matters because attorney generals are important when it comes to criminal justice reform. They play a wide range of roles that impact the functioning of our public safety systems in the state, um, especially when as things have shifted now and the attorney general office is playing an increased role as it relates to the investigation of police shootings. Uh, we see the attorney general's office playing a role as it relates to the provision of victim services. Uh, we see the attorney general's office uh, playing a role as it relates to uh, the development of statewide task forces that can uh, focus on chronic crime problems that are emerging across 
uh, the state. So this is an office that really matters. And uh, I think what we're going to see is consistent with what we've seen at every election turn, which is that when given the choice between a pathway to safety that's focused on rehabilitation and prevention versus a pathway to safety that's focused on big prisons and tough on crime era thinking, voters always choose the more balanced approach. We saw that in the resounding defeat of Proposition 20 in the last election cycle. Uh, we've seen that in the uh, uh, regional elections of forward-thinking prosecutors. And I think we're going to see it again at the level of the attorney general's office. And I, you know, I think that that's Uh, That's a huge boon to uh, uh, this movement for smarter safety. So what's next? uh, Close up with this. What's next for your organization? What are you looking to get on the ballot next year, if anything, or uh, defend something? (laughs) uh, I think there may be some things you might want to be defending uh, that that might be coming down the road. What's what's going on next for, for your crew? Uh, Well, so a couple of different things uh, that we're working on that I'm particularly excited about. Uh, One is uh, we have a statewide uh, network of support for victims of crime. It's called Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice. We have about uh, 10,000 members across the state of California. These are all uh, folks who have been directly impacted by crime and violence, many of whom uh, have uh, been underserved and, and gotten little help in response. And so we're working on legislation to expand uh, the provision of victim services across the state. And in fact, we've had some success augmenting the amount of money uh, that is available to victims, improving the eligibility requirements so that more victims can get help. So this idea of the criminal fixing the criminal justice system, not just on the incarceration side, but on the side of uh, what victims need to get real help and how much of a failure that has been for so many generations. We're excited to be doing that work. We've also got some legislation related to expungements. Uh, we have this uh, campaign we call Time Done, which is all about uh, when time has served, when people have completed their terms, they should be eligible for jobs, for housing, for student loans, for all kinds of things that help people uh, stabilize and thrive. Well, we've got a bill we're working on right now uh, to uh, sunset convictions in California and allow people who've already completed their sentences uh, to be able to uh, go ahead and become eligible for uh, economic mobility opportunities and stability. And so we're going to keep on working on reducing those barriers of convictions, uh, which are totally uh, contradictory to a real public safety agenda, right, which would be about stabilizing people. So it's all for us right now, it's all about helping out more victims of crime and then reducing those barriers of convictions. Um, as it relates to the ballot, we'll, uh, we will come back to you and let you know as soon as we have a sense of what might be happening in 2022. But we know there's a lot of exciting ideas on the table and uh, we're just uh, kind of trying to noodle and figure it all out. All right. Well, I understand. Thank you so much for being on It's All Political. We will, I'm sure we'll be talking again next year. Uh, yes, when indeed. All this... <laughs> it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Lenora for being here today. I'd like to thank the King Webby Award winning producer, King Coffin, for producing this episode. And of course, got to give some love for our fabulous theme music. That song you are listening to is called Cattle Call, and it was written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter whether you believe prime stats or not, 
it's all political. <laughs>